Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks very much for tuning in. On the show this time, we're going to dig into both some management and some cyber issues. Later on in the program, we'll talk about what the Air Force has been doing over the past several years to bolster the cybersecurity of its weapons systems, both legacy systems and brand new ones. That multi-year effort is just about to expand into the Space Force. For the first half of the show, though, we return to the topic of reforming DOD's budgeting system. The expert commission that Congress has tasked with proposing overhauls to that 60-year-old system is still a year away from delivering its final report. But the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Reform has already gathered a huge amount of information in its first progress report. The Commission says it's held 27 formal meetings, interviewed 280 people and organizations, and launched research studies on more than a dozen topics. For an update on the Commission's work, we're joined now by the panel's chair and vice chair, former DOD Comptroller Bob Hale and former DOD Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment Ellen Lord. Uh, thank you both for talking with us today. And the obvious place to get started, I think, is, you know, tell us what the commission's been up to for the past year or so. Uh, give give us a sense of the inputs that you've started gathering as you start to draw up what well, you're going to do. I'll be glad to start with that one, Jared. Um, our first meeting was about a, a year ago, March of 2022. We have been on what I like to describe as a listening and learning tour uh, since then, uh, And we've also uh, established a research agenda uh, aimed at uh, providing us information. We have two federally funded research and development centers working for us and some others doing uh, some assistance as well. Uh, So we learned a lot. uh, And I I think we know enough now uh, to believe that we are on track uh, to meeting the congressional deadlines for an interim report. Uh, this August and a final report next March, and those will make recommendations to improve the PPPE process. Ellen, you want to add to that? Yeah, thank you. Building on what Bob said, we have been very focused on engaging a variety of stakeholders to really look at how we more efficiently and effectively can field capability downrange to the warfighter. And we really think there's an opportunity here to work with the PPBE system to make sure we truly link strategy to budget and that we enable mechanisms and channels for communication between DOD and Congress. One of the things we've heard a lot about is the disparity in data that flows from DOD to Congress, sometimes timeliness, is not as effective as it could be. So I think we're target rich in terms of looking at communication channels and cadence and to make some recommendations on how to significantly improve that to allow Congress to be more responsive as well. Yeah, that, that what Ellen just said gets to something I was going to ask you both, which is, you know, it seems to me one of the first things you want to do is figure out whatever future budgeting system we have, it needs to do X. And, and it sounds like you figured out what X is, at least, which is that budget and strategy linkage. Is that about right? Yeah, and yeah, I, think I think what we've been doing is trying to characterize the current state and look at the desired future state so that we can not only quickly field commercial technology, for instance, 
but the so we can do technology insertion in the year of execution in programs of record. You know, we're fortunate to have commissioners, uh, many of whom have uh, both congressional and DOD experience with this system, in fact, most of them. Um, so we have people that know uh, what both sides uh, need, both the DOD and Congress. But we have asked questions about uh, how those needs can best be met and, and in some cases where they need to change, as Ellen suggested. Uh, so, yeah, I think we are looking at, at requirements for PPBE, if you will, uh, as well as how we can best meet them. Yeah, to, to Bob's point on the expertise of the commission, I mean, these are all, and as are you, veterans, survivors of the PPBE process uh, over the years. Uh, I mean, these are all folks who, if, if they were not on the commission, they'd probably be testifying before the commission. Given that body of expertise that you already have, what have you learned that's been the most interesting? Bob, you said you, you have learned some things along the way already. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples, and uh, these do not uh, are not meant to suggest the commission is recommending sure. these or even uh, that they are necessarily the highest priorities. What they are are the things we've heard a, a lot about. One of them is concerns uh, that the PPBE system may not be always be as flexible as it needs to be in meeting unexpected changes in program requirements. Uh, for example, a technology shift. Uh, that uh, requires a change in the, in a development program. Um, Ellen mentioned another one that's important, the linking uh, uh, budgets to strategy, another thing uh, that we have certainly uh, heard about. We've heard about uh, concerns about relations between DOD and Congress. Um, those are the kinds of issues that we've heard a good deal about, as well as a number of others. Uh, but I think hopefully it'll give you a flavor or the kinds of uh, things that the commission will be looking at. One of the groups that we have talked to is industry, everything from small venture-backed companies um, to mid-sized companies to the primes. And a theme that has come out is the difference between software acquisition and hardware acquisition. And particularly a concern about the fact that if you do software development in a contemporary coding fashion, you are doing development production and sustainment all at once. And there has been a concern expressed that the colors of money are not as flexible as they could be, that perhaps the BA-8 um, mechanism could be more widely used than on the congressional side. It doesn't appear that all the reports that have come up have all been read or disseminated to all the need them. And the software developers are frustrated that they want to work on national security issues. However, the lumpiness of the funding and the lack of understanding that it takes infrastructure to build software, just like it takes infrastructure to build hardware, is not well understood. So there's concern that these pauses in funding, therefore cash flow deficits for small companies, could lead more and more small companies to deselect from doing business with DOD. So some very important findings and learnings there that we want to make sure we continue to communicate and really look for solutions. This may be a weird question, but but have you heard from anyone who says 
don't change anything. We like the current system. Are, are there are there any defenders out there that you've heard of? We've certainly heard from people who defend aspects of PVVE, and I don't believe I remember any interviewee who said absolutely don't make any changes uh, when all of them have suggested. But a number of our interviewees, including people who work with this system for a long time, note uh, that it does. It's a mechanism for bringing up um, uh, major issues and getting them before the senior leadership or the services uh, and departments and then OSD. It tries to bring analytic information to bear on resolving those issues, both in terms of cost analyses, but also assessments of effectiveness of the programs. And that was indeed the major innovation that McNamara made when he introduced PVE way back in 1961. And one more thing we've heard, the system is good, and, and this is true in my experience as well, at being sure relevant voices are heard. Uh, and that's important in a large, diverse organization, especially one like DOD that's going to have to turn around and defend their budget before Congress. So you do want uh, people to have a chance to speak their views. So we have definitely heard pluses uh, for the PVV system. But as I said, I don't think anybody has said, don't touch it at all. I think we found a lot of support for the deliberative process the types of analyses that CAPE does, for instance, and the purpose they serve during the Deputies Management Action Group, the DMAG. However, there is a consensus, I would say, that people believe there needs to be a more frequent cadence of communications so that the building DOD Congress can respond to geopolitical events, what's happening on the battlefield, be able to insert critical new technology. So it's how do you get the reps and sets going so that the entire system can be more responsive and both within DOD and while DOD transmits information to Congress, there does not appear to be a consistent methodology at a um, cadence that satisfies all sides. That's Ellen Lord, former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, also talking with Bob Hale, former DOD Comptroller. Also talking with Bob Hale, former DOD Comptroller. They're now serving as the chair and vice chair of the Congressional Commission on PPBE reform. We'll come back and talk more about the work ahead for the commission after a quick break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking in this part of the show with Ellen Lord, former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, and Bob Hale, former DOD Comptroller. They are now the chair and vice chair of the Congressional Commission on PPBE Reform. We're talking about what the commission's been up to and the work it has ahead over the next year as it prepares to draft a final report eventually to Congress. It seems to me that, that one of the biggest challenges y'all are going to have is, is figuring out how to write recommendations that are not just executable, but can actually drive some kind of long-term change. Because there's no there's no like section of Title 10 that's labeled PPBE that you can just draft mm-hmm. recommended amendments to, right? I mean, how are you starting to think about that problem? N- not only, you know, who to address your recommendations to exactly, but but how to write recommendations that that can actually change some things. I think we're actually trying to give some actions that could be used 
as a subset of the recommendations so that it's not just a policy suggestion, but there's implementation guidance that could just be lifted and shifted. Uh, a big part of this also comes around training. We've talked a lot about training of the workforce and how not only to recommend something, but how to make sure it's sticky and actually becomes part of the DNA of DOD. And a lot of that is around culture and culture is built on what you do. So there's a large leadership call here to have leaders embrace it and have a shadow of the leader in terms of implementing this. I don't think most of what we're recommending are going to require changes in law. We'll have to see, um, but they will require changes in DOD policy. And then importantly, Congress has to accept uh, those policy changes. And I think we're, we're very well aware of that. As, as I said earlier, and you know, the commission has a lot of people with experience on both sides of this, both Congress and DOD. We're very aware uh, that we want, as Ellen said, to have actionable recommendations and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, phrase them or cast them in a way that uh, makes it likely that they'll be accepted. Because in the end, if they do, nothing gets done, then, then I, I think uh, the commission will not have succeeded. Yeah, one of the things we see is that everyone has the appropriate intent and objectives. It's just the way the system is executed leads to frustration and delays. So if we could just enable that communication and decision-making, I think we will have been successful. Yeah, where I was kind of going with that question, and Ellen got to some of it, is it seems to me a lot of what the system actually is is, is less codified in DOD regulation and in statute. It's habits, inertia, culture, as you said. Really hard stuff to change. And, and just say a little bit more about how you get after some of that stuff in a written report. Well, the process itself is codified in a DOD instruction, but I take your point uh, that a lot of the details of how it is carried out are depends on culture, as you say, also personalities, uh, what's important. Again, I'd go back to the experience uh, that the commission has and some of its staff, uh, many of its staff also have substantial experience. We're looking at actionable recommendations through the lens of of what can happen. I won't say we wouldn't ever make a recommendation, even if we don't think it has much chance of success. If that's the only way to fix it, uh, I think we need to have the courage to propose it. But uh, we also want to, for example, start small. If it's a major change, maybe you experiment with a certain subset of programs that you think are of particularly high priority, rather than say, let's do this DOD-wide immediately in hopes that both DOD and Congress are more willing uh, to accept uh, those kinds of uh, a way to get started. If we provide examples of what has worked effectively and what has not worked, mm. I believe that that will help support our recommendations and allow individuals to understand the art of the possible and perhaps what right looks like. One other thing I did want to get to is the sort of, I guess I'll say, proactive research agenda that, that you all have put together, because that's a little different than just having open mic sessions and, and listening to the problem. You've decided what questions you want to examine. Can you take us through a, a, a little bit what that agenda is, what you are asking, what you want to learn through that process? 
Sure. Some of it is specified in the law. Uh, Section 1004 of the Fiscal 22 NDA specifies a number of topics. For example, the sufficiency of the civilian workforce in DOD uh, for programming and budgeting is one of the topics, as well as the timelines <clears throat> of major documents and how you can change them. Um, the, the Congress also specifically said, and, and we have uh, research going on either through an FFRDC or our own staff on both of those. Uh, Congress also said they, wanna, uh, they want us to learn more about how budgeting is done in other countries, both our partner nations, so we're looking at Australia, uh, the UK, and Canada, but also our adversarial nations, Russia, and particularly China. Uh, and, and can we learn anything from those? And some of them are uh, topics that are definitely uh, things we felt were uh, important. Let me give you an example there, and that's restructuring of the budget. Is it reasonable, for example, to combine some of the program elements, which are the basic building blocks of the DOD budget, and in some cases like RDT&E, that's what Congress appropriates to. Is it reasonable to combine or expand some of those? Uh, would that first be acceptable to Congress in terms of oversight, but second, give us some, uh, give DOD some more flexibility in executing the budget? So we have tried to be judicious or careful in picking our research topics. There's only so much we have time uh, to do, uh, both based on what Congress has told us, but also our own judgment. So we're, we are talking to industry again at the small, medium, and large level about how they do planning and resourcing and budgeting and execution. We know that government's very different from industry. However, we are trying to identify best practices and learnings that we could implement within the government. So that's been a very, very interesting part of our research. We've spanned, you know, just not the typical primes and high-tech companies, but we've spoken to Walmart, for instance. So gathering a lot of information about how industry links strategy to budget and how they crisply execute. Going back to something Bob just said, you know, the the department could, for example, consolidate a bunch of program elements and, and submit a budget that has fewer line items each year. But Congress could very easily just break them all apart again when it when it drafts an appropriations bill. So how how are you starting to think about how to message to the kill the reasons why it's important to do things if you do decide to recommend something like PE consolidation? Right. And again, we have not made right, that right, 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 right. Yeah. So uh, first off, we are a legislative commission, and and we're trying to uh, stay close uh, to the Congress. Uh, we have had uh, two separate sets of meetings uh, with staff members, senior staff members from all four of the defense committees are beginning another round of those now in the, in the wake of publication of this uh, status update. We've talked to former congressional staffers who are trying to keep the pulse of Congress. Um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, uh, Jared, that, uh, that we have any magic. Uh, there is differences of opinion in some cases between DOD and Congress as, the nature of, as to the nature of oversight. But another thing that I think we'll consider is starting small. Uh, are there ways that we could uh, implement some of these changes perhaps restricted to the programs that are most uh, in need of more flexibility uh, and, and, would that, and, and with a careful attention to whether or not uh, that still provides uh, adequate oversight opportunities for Congress. 
So, so no easy answer to that question, but it's certainly one on our minds, and and we will try to, uh, I think, draft our recommendations with that uh, with that thought in mind. Building on what Bob said, I think the commission can serve as connective tissue between DOD and Congress relating what we've heard from one group to the other, trying to put it in perspective, giving context to the comments. And we are meeting regularly with Congress and going in and having very substantive conversations on what we've heard, what they think, how they react. So I believe catalyzing the conversation is just in itself one very beneficial outcome of this commission. I think this is my last thing, but I I wonder if part of this too, in terms of getting congressional buy-in, is getting back to the data point that you both talked about earlier. If the department delivers more relevant, more up-to-date data throughout the life cycle of a of a budget process rather than dropping a big book on them at the beginning of the of, of the cycle does that increase their level of buy-in and their their willingness to try some different things well i think one of the things is coming up with a system that isn't dumping a big book yeah. because that's part of part of the problem so we've been looking at all kinds of electronic dashboards and different things to frankly get towards more of a continuum versus this episodic event. So I'll give you an example of one thing we've heard about. Again, this is not a, a recommendation mm-hmm. at this point. And, and that is, I think I mentioned earlier, we've heard concerns from Congress. They get a great deal of information during the budget drop. After that, it's episodic. Should there be some form of a mid-year update uh, that DOD provides to Congress, uh, dealing perhaps with the budget proposal, certainly with execution, Again, no recommendations, but it's the kind of issue uh, that that I, I think we need to mull over through the lens of the experience that the commissioners have, again, on both sides, DOD and Congress. That's Bob Hale, former DOD comptroller, and we've also been talking with Ellen Lord, the former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. They're now serving as the chair and vice chair of the Congressional Commission on PPBE reform. They've just posted their first progress report describing where the commission's work stands as they prepare to eventually deliver a final report to Congress about a year from now. We'll post a link to that progress report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Short break here and we will get another progress report from the Air Force on how that service is doing when it comes to improving the cybersecurity of its weapon systems. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio. I'm Jared Sergey. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Air Force says it's making progress in securing its weapon systems against cyber threats. The service's Cyber Resiliency Office for Weapon Systems, or CROWS, has been up and running for five years now. It has cyber experts embedded at several Air Force acquisition offices, and CROWS is getting ready to expand to the Space Force. For an update on some of their work, we're joined by Joe Bradley, he's the director of CROWS, and Lieutenant Colonel Zach Lehman, the CROWS materiel leader. And Mr. Bradley, let's start with the news, which is um, the, the new partnerships I mentioned that you're developing with Space Force. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on there? And, and are, you know, are these, you know, new introductions to these Space Force missions or had they been kind of in the works prior to the creation of the Space Force when, when everybody was part of the same service? 
Thank you very much for having us and, uh, and a great question. Uh, to be honest with you, it's a continuation and a of evolution of the discussions we've had with Space Force. Space Force, if you remember back from the uh, Cyber Resiliency Steering Group days, was an integral part, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, through the Director of Engineering or then the Chief uh, Information Officer. Uh, what we're doing is, as, as we've worked closely with the CIO's office, we also realize that we need to partner with the program executive officer and the individual program communities. So when we talk about a, uh, a partnership with space, it's now evolving our existing partnership and getting more into the uh, the day-to-day aspects of the programs where we'll be able to, uh, to make an even bigger difference. And as I understand it, the way this is kind of operationalized is through what you all are calling cyber focus teams, which will now be inserted into Space Force programs. Can you tell us, you know, foundationally, what those teams actually do on a day-to-day basis in the in the places where they already exist? Sure. So our cyber-focused teams are experts that are there to work with the program offices, you know, the, the chief engineers, the lead engineers, the program managers, and the prime contractors to ensure that the systems that we're acquiring and, and are fielding on behalf of the warfighter are, uh, are cyber-resilient. So it's a, it's a group of unique specialties, and we are actually working with the space community right now to identify what specific series and categories and, and grades that they want to, uh, to work in their program offices with a template that we've used that's been historically uh, proven to work within the, uh, the non-space portfolios. So we're in the infancy. We basically had our first kickoff meeting with the, the program executive officers uh, in January of this year, and we're, uh, we're starting to work in, in build that construct out based on our leveraging the work that we've done with the non-space folks. In the programs where the team's already established, how established are they? How long have they been up and running and, and what have they been able to contribute so far? Sure. I believe three years. It varies. It may be actually be four years, but, but it varies as to um, which program offices. So I don't want to get into specifics of, of what they've, they've done and what they've found, but we've, we've found that they've assisted us in uh, responding to the congressional data calls uh, and NDAA 1637 to build that budget display. We found that they have been very helpful in developing the, the cyber uh, words that would go into acquisition documents, like a statement of work, uh, like a specification, to make sure that we've got those hooks in. I know we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, System Security Engineering Guidebook, but they actually are the, the practitioners that will implement the tenets of that guidebook in the program offices and use that as a way to work with the industrial base, both our traditional and non-traditional defense industrial mm-hmm. base partners, to ensure that, that the systems we build, uh, when they are networked together, uh, will be uh, resilient and, and able to provide the operational uh, needs, to satisfy the operational needs of the warfighter. Let's talk a bit about where you're drawing workforce from. How are you staffing up these teams? How large are they? What kind of experience and expertise are, are, are you looking for? Because the whole concept of weapon system cybersecurity is not a super old one, right? You're correct. And, and as you know, there's a, a huge demand signal right now uh, within the country for cyber professionals. So what we have found is um, we've actually had to go out and create a uh, learning pathway with with our education and training team so that we can take some of the younger professionals and mid-career professionals and provide them with the cyber acumen to uh, to be effective. You know, they've got solid system engineering or or, uh, logistics backgrounds, but now we're we're kind of, you know, injecting them with some good acquisition cyber background so that they can do that. So we've got uh, an aware and an evolved path so that uh, they they basically can, can... walk the talk when it comes to cyber and they they're not going to be 
um, you know, the world's preeminent cyber experts, but we are going to learn from the world's preeminent cyber experts and use that to create the coursework to, uh, to grow them, uh, both personally and professionally. Uh, and that's kind of what we've been doing. Uh, Zach, I don't know if you want to throw anything in from. Copy that, sir. Yes. Uh, the, in, in line with that, right, there's, there's a whole host of, uh, call it, uh, current functional series and, and Crows reaches out to, uh, all of them to help pull them in to more or less admit that finding that one person that's a SME and say avionics and how hyper can come across its threat surfaces that we're learning from that and or uh, grooming that into how these different functional theories are brought into say a cyber focus team and how we leverage the skills that those folks have as well as shape them to uh, provide value to our program offices and kind of the the words that that everybody's been using for this all along are that you want to bake in cybersecurity, which suggests the main focus is on systems that are in development but are the teams working at all on legacy systems systems that already exist looking for ways to harden those the majority of our programs uh are our fielded programs, right? So uh, we look at opportunities, whether it's in uh, depot, midlife extensions, or just a tech refresh to increase the resilience. Um, a great example of that is uh, some work we did years ago. Uh, Reggie, I'm sure you probably remember the resilient embedded the GPS. Uh, we, we actually provided the initial outlay of research and development funds so that as an aircraft would come in for a midlife upgrade, they can then get that aspect and, and you know, uh, incorporated within their weapon system baseline, and it would then harden that weapon system to a state better than it was before. And, you know, I, I want to stress that because this is going to be an evolution. We are always going to learn uh, as our adversaries create more attack vectors, as they uh, try to look for more exploits. We have to, we can't just say that we're, we've got this great product and we're done and we're, we're, we're through. Reggie is a great example. In fact, uh, the GAO has, uh, has actually uh, recognized that as a, as a great lessons learned, a great uh, way to do this. So we will constantly look for ways to harden the systems further. And I also want to stress that it's not just material solutions that we look for. We look for the entire spectrum, you know, tactics, techniques, procedures, you know, doctrine. There are other ways to make sure that we are hardening our weapon systems and, and protecting our warfighters. Yeah, and a lot of this goes beyond cyber expertise, I would imagine, right? Because I, I know one of the things that y'all have been thinking about and working on for, for years now is getting some of this baking in into contract language. So, so maybe talk about the multidisciplinary aspects of this and, and, and how you apply all these principles to the acquisition process. Sure thing. That's a great question because that's exactly where the focus is on our new systems. We have an opportunity. We have a clean sheet. We have the opportunity to design this you know, from, the, from the, the ground up. So we actually are working with the acquisition community. And by that, I mean program managers, logisticians, test and evaluation folks, systems engineers, even our finance folks uh, are embedded with us because they have a vested interest. Because I can tell you that I can develop this really elaborate solution but if it's not financially feasible to implement, then I've wasted time and money. So we require the entirety of, of the acquisition workforce to help us to, uh, to build it right from the, from the onset. And we use the acquisition guidebook, the system security acquisition guidebook, uh, as a uh, engineering guidebook, excuse me, as a, uh, a starting point. When we developed the language that's going to go into the acquisition documentation, we reached out through NDIA, the National Defense Industrial Association, uh, so they could uh, contact their partners. Because we don't want 
and, and mandate language that is untenable uh, from, our, from our defense industrial base. So we want to make sure that the language that we put out there is language that they can accept and they can achieve. If we build a guidebook that everybody can use instead of just a mandate, they're going to be more apt to want to embrace it and use it. And I found that that, that is exactly what's happened with our, our guidebook. You know, we've as we've learned more, we've uh, we've expanded the guidebook. So um, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing, and, and we want to make sure that it's not just an engineering thing, because cyber is not just an engineering thing; it is a, an entire spectrum. That's Joe Bradley, the director of the Air Force Cyber Resiliency Office for Weapon Systems, or Crows. Also with us is Lieutenant Colonel Zach Lehman, the Crows Materiel Leader. We'll hear some more details from Colonel Lehman on that forthcoming guidebook after a quick break. This is on DoD on Federal News Radio part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're talking in this part of the show with Joe Bradley and Lieutenant Colonel Zach Lehman. They are, respectively, the director and material leader for the Air Force Cyber Resiliency Office for Weapon Systems. Colonel Lehman, let's dig into the guidebook that Mr. Bradley mentioned just before the break and and maybe take a couple steps back and talk about what the objective is behind uh, writing that in the first place. I understand there's a a public release coming for the 5.0 version. Yeah, good good question as well. So when it comes down to the system security engineering cyber guidebook, the the initial intent there was to to appreciate the fact that in, say, the the policy and guidance trade space that, that touched cyber, there was, I'd say, over 10,000 pages of policy and guidance, and um, it would be pushed in, say, the different functional stovepipes where some direction and guidance would get to some pieces of the workforce. Um, And as those, say, different functional chains would come together in an integrated product team, that there would have to be a higher level understanding of how those came to play in in how to acquire a weapon system. And so from the guidebook's perspective, it took that broad view and said, how do we boil this down to sound system security engineering best practices? How do we streamline all that guidance and say where the duplication exists, where contradictions might exist? How do we um, create a single document that can help backstop any blind spots that that were in that policy and guidance and and how do we bring together those functional perspectives to say how do we walk through the acquisition timeline and where do we apply these best practices and how does that then translate to hey i'm in a different program office i'm in a different uh say time slice of the acquisition timeline. What are the things that I should be thinking about as we participate in these integrated product teams? And uh, how do we apply unity of effort across the Department of the Air Force to apply these best practices that then result in more consistent outcomes from an acquirer's perspective in taking in cyber resiliency and, and how we shape those expectations with industry? Yeah, and it sounds like from everything you just said, Colonel, the main target audience here is the acquisition workforce, the acquisition community. But I wonder, since this is going to be a public release, is it also at least partly directed to industry so that they know, you know, what the Air Force expects? Oh, yeah, one 100%. It's, um, it's all about 
managing expectations, right? So we can point back to say, hey, there's a standard key performance parameter that talks to system survivability. And that, uh, that standard key performance parameter is something that gets pushed into requirements, but how those words get derived into contractual outcomes is up to the different program offices. And so that can be interpreted in different ways. And it's important as say we build toward a vision of the Air Force for joint all domain command and control that we're foundationalizing a unity of effort perspective in how cyber gets appreciated and derived into consistent outcomes for what ultimately goes on contract and what conversations that drives from an acquisition perspective to say, how do we manage system design? How do we manage um, how that design gets uh, reviewed and approved through the acquisition process and, and how we help streamline that for both the government acquirers and uh, our industry partners uh, because we're walking that acquisition timeline hand in hand. And so for a public release perspective, yeah, we're, we're expecting that that gets into the hands of our industry partners. Let's uh, zoom back out a little bit and talk a little bit more generally about crows because I'm curious um, what you all have come up with in terms of, of measures of success and, and gauging which best practices actually make make some progress against the problem. I, you know, what ways have you figured out to tell whether a particular practice actually makes a system more cyber resilient? So we've talked about baking in cyber resiliency. We've also talked about um, mitigating vulnerabilities on uh, fielded weapon systems. And, and the way you measure that is different for each of them. So uh, Mr. Bradley touched on uh, the cyber budget display uh, in response to AA1637, right? That is a, what are the known interactions on, say, the review of system design uh, and where financing is being placed on resolving known vulnerabilities. That is uh, easily measurable, and that gets included into the, uh, say, annual reporting role that CROWS facilitates across the Department of the Air Force. Um, on the bake-in perspective, there is a cyber health assessment that CROWS facilitates through our cyber focus teams, which touches on uh, a handful of different aspects that come into play in how our systems are acquired. So uh, those are things like program protection plans, what kind of artifacts and documentation is provided from an approval to operate perspective, um, what pieces of that goes into the risk management framework and how the evolution of, of threat is driving an understanding of how we respond now during the acquisition timeline to threats that are evolving so that we're not just delivering weapons systems that are driven by long timelines to threats that have evolved since the requirement was put on contract. And so from that perspective, uh, that information is both 
provided back up through annual reporting and then also provided to uh, program executive officers as well as their directors of engineering to say how can we Crows and uh, the workforce in the acquisition community hone our understanding of those acquisition practices to apply resources that improve those products over time. The budget discussion gets back to one of the, the last things I wanted to ask you all about, which is, you know, I, I remember back when Crows first stood up in 2017 or so, one of the concerns around that time or one of the things that you knew was going to be challenging was that there, there really wasn't a process yet to put funding against this problem because it hadn't been a major consideration in the past. F- from what you guys are saying, it sounds like the, the budget or the Crows itself is mature enough and the process is mature enough that, that big Air Force really is putting money against this problem at this point. Yeah, you're exactly right. And um, you mentioned maturity. Uh, one of the things that, that I like to think is we've evolved our, uh, our processes significantly uh, over time. Um, we're making data-driven decisions now in terms of what to invest in. We also created a completely transparent requirements review board where programs and, uh, and even sometimes vendors uh, will come in with unique solutions. And they, they get vetted up through the program office, our program office, our chief engineer, our finance, contracting, on to Colonel Lehman and then on to myself to see if they're in scope with Crows, whether they've got, um, is the juice worth the squeeze, right, when we do an investment? Because uh, as we all know, you know, dollars are limited. I, I tell people I could spend the entire obligation authority of the Air Force and still not solve all the threats. So what we have to do is we have to uh, we have to look at things with really a, a intelligence lens, right? Where are those threats? Where are those vectors? And that's how we, we kind of make those data-driven decisions, determine what to invest in, as well as what the, you know, what's the timeline on these mitigation solutions? Is this something that is needed immediately? Or is this something that we do have some time to actually develop a more uh, esoteric and robust solution too. So uh, I, I like to think that uh, our requirements review process that we have in place with a, with a board uh, provides us that uh, transparency that, that I believe is needed, uh, but also um, it enables that, that anybody could come in, whether it's a user, whether it's, uh, you know, folks that are involved in the, uh, the chief's operational imperatives, uh, you know, they can come in and have insight into visibility and what our investment strategy is. And uh, is it consistent with the objectives of the Air Force and the Space Force, and then how do we make sure that we continue to, to keep that trust there, that we're, not, we're just not investing in, uh, in science here projects that have no utility. And I, I, I'm, very, you know, I'm very pleased with the way this has worked out. I, I think we've got a lot of strong partnerships, and like I said, uh, transparency is key to me, especially when it comes to uh, financial management. That is Joe Bradley, the Director of the Air Force Cyber Resiliency Office for Weapons Systems, or CROWS, We've also been talking with Lieutenant Colonel Zach Lehman, the Crow's material leader. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Bob Hale, former DOD Comptroller and former DOD Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ellen Lord. They are now heading up the Congressionally Chartered Commission on PPBE Reform, and the commission has just posted its first progress report. If you missed that part of the show, we'll post this week's full episode, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 